Welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at bkcwest.com. We are jumping back into our series in Genesis. It's called Origins. So we're looking at uh, not only just the origin of all things, but we're also looking at the origins of our faith, looking at the origins of the things that God is doing in time and space. Uh, you know, we celebrated Easter just now where we celebrated the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But we see that God promised that thousands of years before that. And so we're looking at how that developed in the early days. We're seeing how faithful God is and how unfaithful people are, even though they promise time and time again uh, to do things right. And so all of this got me thinking about uh, my prop here. You, you, may, you may not be able to see it, but this is my last name, Busick. And so this is our Busick bag. And uh, when our boys, we have three boys, they're all teenagers now, but when they were little, my grandparents gave us this Busick bag. And so in the early years, it was uh, stocked with diapers and, and all the things that you need to go with that and toys and as we go to different places. And then as the boys got older, they used to love to go to the library with Michelle, my wife. And so, I mean, just books, just they would clean out the whole library. And uh, this wasn't the only bag they used, just books overflowing. And so now that they're older and they have book bags and computer bags and cars and all those things, uh, I use the Busick bag. So uh, my office is at home. And so... I will bring books back and forth, depending on what I'm doing here and, and whatnot. So you may have a bag like this that you use and identify with that kind of stuff. But, um, but then there's the proverbial family bag, right? Uh, and the proverbial family bag are the things that we carry on from generation to generation. And, and some of those things in the family bag that we bring to places and situations, some of them are healthy. Uh, really things that we want the next generation to have and, and we want them to be encouraged by. And then some of those things aren't healthy, right? Like there's stuff that you just, you pass on and, and, and sometimes the next generation just says, well, this is how I am. It's how, it's how I am. It's how my, my mom was and it's how my grandfather was. You know, we just, it's like, this is how we are, right? And that's kind of the situation that, that ends up being there. Well, um, that's kind of like what we see in our passages today. And we're going to go through Genesis 29, 36. Don't worry, we're not going to read them all. Um, we're going to do a flyover of much of it, catch the major themes. But you see this family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're people just like you and I that are trying to seek after God. Um, they've caught on to God and his vision and what he wants to do in life, and they're trying to be different and seeking after. And in most days, they're failing miserably. Okay, you know, it's just... Things aren't going great necessarily, um, but they keep coming back to God as he comes back to them. As he gives them grace, they grow and they grow. And what's at risk the whole time is, will they be a blessing to other people after they've been blessed by God? Because God's blessed them to be a blessing to the nations. And so you see this tension time and time again. And so, you know, will they be a light to the world? Will they reflect God? Will they, they be that blessing to God? Or will they become just consumed in themselves? Um, and so the problem is, though, is they have stuff in their family bag. You know, and that's the stuff that gets in the way. And so um, in the New Testament, it speaks of this battle. Uh, the battle is, is that will we have Christ formed in us? Like, will Jesus be formed in us? And uh, a lot of times we think it's automatism. So it's like, it's just automatic. I give my life to Christ. Christ is formed in me. 
But the New Testament is clear is, is that it's something that we have to actually participate in. Uh, Dallas Willard, an author that I like, he uses the example that, that just like if you want to learn a language, like you just don't sit there and say, I hope I can start to speak Spanish. You know, I, I just, I want to speak Spanish. You actually set a plan, you actually walk through lessons, you actually learn things. You're a student. And that's the model that we see in the New Testament is we see that Jesus calls people to be followers, to be students of him. And then it's after time, what happens is Christ is then formed in them. And so there's a battle there. Some of it has to do with eternal life, right? Like the number one feature of eternal life that I think people in our day and age would say is, well, you get to live forever, you get to go to heaven, right? And that's good. That's the length of life. That's the length of eternal life. But eternal life in scripture, it's more often spoken of as a quality of life. And so there's a quality of life or eternal life that we can have now that God actually promises us as we seek after him. But our family bag gets in the way. And so let's dive in. We're going to actually read quickly the end of chapter 28 and uh, verse 18 through 22. And we see that Jacob, who God has now passed on this covenant with his people to Jacob. It went to Abraham, it went to Isaac, and now it's their son Jacob. And Jacob is a deceiver, he's a manipulator, he's a liar, he's been doing this his whole life, and now he has this encounter with God, and we look at what's happening the next morning. It says, the next morning Jacob got up very early, he took the stone he had rested his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it. There must not have been a, um, inflation, you know, during his time. You know, he's just right. I mean, because that olive oil is expensive these days. But uh, he named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. Then Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. So Jacob is moving away from a self-reliance to a reliance upon God. He's moving uh, to having higher expectations upon God versus himself. Um, he's moving away from manipulate, manipulation and scheming and moving towards more of open arms, open hands, that type of person. He's becoming that but he's still in process. You know, he's still in process because interesting thing is, did you notice that it says, if God does this, then I'll do this. If God does this for me, then I'll do, so it's, it's more performance-based. So in other words, God needs to perform, and if God performs, I'll do these things. And we understand it, right? I mean, to a certain extent, if God is who he says he is, then I'll do this. But the problem is, is that it's this, it's God doesn't make a covenant that way. God just says, I'm going to do this, even if you don't. And so this is where we find Jacob. But still, after Jacob's encounter, he's different for sure. You see a different person. But when he gets around family, what we realize is that family isn't necessarily different. And so Jacob's journey that he's on is he's actually looking for a wife. His mom and dad sent him away and said, you know, go find a wife amongst your relatives in the land that, that we came from. And so as he gets there... 
he's in the process of wanting to change. He's in the process of wanting to be different. But as he gets there, God leads Jacob to his wife. The first person that he meets amongst his, his uh, relative's family is his wife, Rachel. And falls in love with her right away. She's beautiful. And uh, so he goes to Laban, her father, and he says, like, you know, I'd really like to marry your daughter. He doesn't have a big dowry to, big, uh, to, to bring, to give. So Laban says, look, serve for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, you can marry Rachel. And you look at that, you say, wow, that's a long time. But remember, she, she probably was uh, an early teen during this time. And so uh, she would mature during that seven years, and, and then they would marry. And, you know, verse 20 of chapter 29 of Genesis is one of the most beautiful verses that you'll see in Scripture in here. And it says this, it says, So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Ah, that good. But wait, it doesn't really go like that. See, what happens is, is that Laban actually deceives Jacob. And on wedding day, he actually inserts Leah into the mix instead of Rachel. And you say, wait, wait a minute. How would Jacob not know that it was Rachel and it's Leah instead? Well, it's a little bit different what they would do to kick off the wedding is, is uh, especially in this culture way out in the, in the, in the boonies, in the woods, it, it was, they just said, you know, they started with consummating the marriage. And so, uh, you know, somehow Jacob wakes up the next morning and realizes it's Leah, uh, Rachel's sister instead of Rachel. And it's the, the, the wording, the language is actually, uh, in there was Leah in the morning. And so Jacob's upset. He goes to him and Laban says, what? We don't want to marry off the younger one before the older. Come on, have mercy on us. And so long story short, Jacob says, look, I'll serve another seven years for both of them. And so he's now going to serve 14 years total for, you know, for these two wives. So he has two wives now. And the New Testament's interesting. Genesis doesn't condone, uh, you know, polygamy. It doesn't condone that. Um, there's a progressive revelation that people realize how things are. And so, and it's very complicated if you look at the problem. So I don't necessarily look at it, anybody, and say, this is the way to go. Um, because there's problems for sure. <clears throat> um, so Jacob, his wives and children stay another six years on top of the 14 years. So 20 years total, we see Jacob in this land here. And um, during that time, uh, <clears throat> there is... Uh, anger, jealousy, rage, competition, and deception. And this is the family following after God. They have normal stuff going on because they've got stuff in their bag. And so um, what's interesting, over these years, uh, the 13 years, um, or over this time, you don't really see Jacob interacting with God. You have the great scene that we read when we first started, but then during this time, you don't see Jacob like really seeking God, seeking after his face. You don't see him going to him, asking. It could be just uh, the author didn't include those moments for, to tell the other story. Uh, but I think in some ways, uh, Jacob, it's not that he rejected God, but he just got busy doing life and, and experiencing the blessings of God versus actually growing in that relationship with God. And so um, 
during that time, Leah, Rachel, and their maidservants gave birth to 11 of Jacob's sons and at least one daughter. Uh, during this time, things were more patriarchal, and it's not right, but it just is, is that they would list the male uh, uh, offspring and, and not the female, uh, as far as all those. So anytime you read in scripture, there's, there's probably way more daughters as well, because the chance that they had 11 sons during this time, and then ultimately 12, and only one daughter is pretty far-fetched. Uh, but Le- Leah and Rachel communicated their brokenness through the names given to their sons. It was this competition uh, because uh, Jacob loved Rachel, uh, but Leah, he, he more just kind of, you know, it was his other wife. And so she wasn't loved. And so Leah named her first son Reuben, and this is uh, what she did. So, so Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, the Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. And so you see the brokenness there. You see the heart, how she's hurt. Uh, she's experiencing pain in her life. And, and it actually says that God saw her, that she wasn't loved. And so she did this. So it's appropriate that she does this. But listen to some of the names and the sons that she gave after. First of all, Reuben means that God sees, but it's God sees, now Jacob will love me. So now that this happens, Jacob will love me because I've given him a son. And you can feel the hurt, the pain, the desire there to, to be a whole person, to be loved by her husband. So she names her next son, Simeon, which really means God hears because I am unloved. And the word actually is hated. It's not that she was hated. When you see hated in scripture, it's actually saying not preferred. In other words, you prefer the other one so much that it's as if you hate the other one. And then her third son, Levi, right? You may have a pair of those on, right? Maybe you have a pair of Levi's on. Interesting. What that word means is, is that attached. Levi means attached. And so uh, Levi, naming her son Levi, would mean now this time Jacob will be attached to me. Now it's going to happen now that I've provided a third son. But that doesn't happen. So her fourth son, she names thanks Judah or Thanksgiving or Confession. And I'm going to take a step to this. It's inferred somewhat. But I think that at this point, Leah was saying, even though I don't have what I want, even though I've been let down, even though my husband doesn't love me, even though things haven't turned out the way I want them to, I'm going to praise the Lord anyways. I'm going to praise God anyways, even though I'm going to thank God. Now, Rachel, during this time, she hasn't been able to have any kids. She's loved by her husband, but so now she gets in the mix with naming her sons. So she all of a sudden has a son. She names him Dan, which means God ruled for me. And if you don't know what's going on here yet, they're speaking to each other by these names. Uh, And so she names her next son Naphtali, which means I have won. Okay, yeah. So stuff in the bag, right? In the family. And so Jacob and Laban, uh, over time, after all this is going on, they agree that Jacob and Jacob should go. But Laban doesn't really want to let Jacob go. And so they're both shepherds. They're both herders. And so what they do, what you see is you actually see who's the most shrewd herder. But ultimately, who's the biggest deceiver? Who's the biggest manipulator? Uh, That's what we see. And so uh, Laban said, and, and Jacob can leave when he has enough herds that are his own. And so what you actually see is that Laban sets things up so that 
his part of the herd would increase and increase and increase and Jacob's would decrease, decrease. So basically he would never get there. But Jacob was working his own mix of things so that his part of the herd would increase, increase, increase and Laban's would decrease, decrease. Well, Jacob won. And it was kind of like, you know, the bumper sticker, like he who dies with the most toys wins. You ever seen that bumper sticker? Okay. Uh, This is kind of like he who dies with the most herds wins. And so Jacob wins, and uh, he came out the winner, if, if there is a winner of that. But what happened in the family during this time is that stuff became more important than people. Right? That's one of the first things that we, we would teach our boys, because you know, they'd be playing in the playroom, and, you know, mine. Right? And then they would treat the person differently, because they want the thing. And so we'd say, people are more important than stuff. Great, give me the thing, you know, when they're real little. But as you get older, like, isn't that an important concept? That people are more important than stuff, but this family wasn't getting that. Uh, Laban's sons become jealous of Jacob in verse 31. They're looking and they're saying, hey, this foreigner, even though he's a part of our family, like this guy, he's, he's taking things from us. We're losing our inheritance. And so uh, Laban, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel all fought to have more and keep from each other. Um, and then Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and family then run away. Run away. We're out of here. You know, we just, you know, we're taking our stuff because the, the, um, the, the herds were separated because they're so large. And so... Um, uh, they were like a three-day journey from each other. Says, you know what? Laban's gone. Let's take off. Let's take all the stuff. Rachel, in the midst of it, takes these, uh, these little household idols, these household gods of, of Laban's. So Laban come, comes home and, or to this area, and he finds that they've left. And so he and his sons chase after Jacob, and they say, hey, you know what? We need to make this right. But for, at first, there's this game, if you read it, uh, if you read it in chapters 31, there's this game that, um, that it's kind of like, all of this is mine. You know, Laban says, you know, these are my daughters, my stuff, my herds. And it's just, again, they have stuff more important people. They're greedy, money's involved, because they have much more wealth than they had before. And so there's this battle happening back and forth. Uh, Jacob is right on the cusp of, like if Kansas City, Kansas is, is your home, or Kansas City, Missouri, uh, it's like uh, he, he's kind of at Topeka. You know, if this is where he's coming, he's at Topeka, or, or, or even Lawrence. He's, he's coming this way, but this is his home. 300 miles away from where he was, so maybe a week has passed before they left, um, but what happens is, is they ultimately bring God into it. You've got all the baggage of Laban's family. You've got all the baggage of Jacob's family interacting and fighting and trying to take and move and all these things. And then all of a sudden you see that they make a covenant and they bring God into it. And, you know, they set boundaries for their relationship and what's happening. And, and somehow things sort out. And isn't that... What happens when we bring God into our relationships? And then what happens when we invite him into even just a simple discussion or an argument, right? We just invite him in and, and things are different. Uh, I had this opportunity the other day, uh, last week, and, uh, you know, Michelle, my wife, came to me on something and, and, and said something and, and, 
and everything was cool and we're fine. And, and all of a sudden, and, and it just, it triggered me. And I'm like, whoa. And, I'm, and this is what went through my head. And I'm mowing the lawn, right? And I'm sitting there going through. And in my head, I'm like, well, why did she do that? Because now that she did that, now we're going to, you know, now we're going to fight about this. And now we're going to do these things. And now we're going to go after this. And, and, you know, the reality is, you know, maybe she's right. But, at, you know, I'm, this is all going on here, right? And, uh, you know, the lawn is all like this now and, you know, all the place. And, um, and so, but then, but then the Lord says, well, is she right? Like, yeah, she is. And so, you know, I pulled out my phone. And I said, you're right. That's what I've been doing. Forgive me. And then so all of the story and all the things that I put in my head of how things were going to go didn't happen because I invited him in. And we see that here, and, and it's, it's true for life too. Well, this is all good timing for Jacob because Jacob's about to meet his brother. He hasn't seen him in 20 years. And if you remember what happened before he took off to find a wife, his brother, the last time he saw him, he swindled him out of like all of his inheritance, all of his blessing, all of those things. And his brother wanted to kill him. His brother said, I'm, I'm going to kill. I'm going to kill Jacob. And so he took off. And so, so Jacob has this story going through his head that he's going to interact with and he's going to come across his brother. And this is how it's going to go. And, and, uh, he, you know, will he be driven by fear, anxiety, and deception? You know, or will he go into the deeper into the person he was created to be? Like, will he reference God and, and, and allow God to change him and move in him? Or will he function out of his anxiety and his fear? Will he look for what's truly true? Or will he go along with being triggered in his deception and anxiety? Well, you guessed it. He chooses door number one. And so he takes his fear and his deception and his anxiety and, and he goes through that. And, and so what he does is, um, and, and that's what his dad and grandfather did before them. That's what Isaac did. That's what Abraham did. When they were under pressure, they would fold and reference themselves tree of good and evil instead of referencing God. That's what he does initially. And so what he does is that he realizes and he hears that Esau, his brother, is coming with 400 trained warriors to meet him. Okay? And so what he says is, look, I'm going to send wave after wave of gifts to pacify Esau. And he said, well, that's not so bad. But it, it's, it's transactional. It's not relational. And he's just kind of like, if I can trick him and, and make him feel something different than what he's feeling, instead of dealing with the real emotions that are there, then we can move past this and we can just get on with our lives. But the problem with that is, is that just goes on in the next generation. If you don't really deal with the problem, you just, it just sits there, right? Okay, everything's fine, no big deal. Well, at this time, God actually comes to help him out. Because this is a big moment. And so in, uh, in Genesis, 20, 30, Genesis 32, you actually see God send these hosts or these helpers. And uh, one of them was God himself in bodily form. And so it was, it was pre-incarnate Jesus. You see this throughout Genesis in the Old Testament. You see that Jesus, before obviously, before he was born of a woman, Mary, God's son, God himself, actually came down in human form. And so we see, it actually says there that Jacob wrestles with God. 
And so what happens is everybody's off. And then there's this interesting part of this where it says, and then Jacob was alone. You know, I mean, it's something for us to ponder. You know, uh, some of us were like, oh, I, I just love to be alone, right? But then there's, I can't be alone. And maybe you can be alone, like, spending time, but, you know, can you have a time if, you, you know, if you're single or, you know, are you okay being single for a bit or you'd always have to move on to find the next person, you know, um, if you've gone through a breakup or divorce, those things, you know, are you okay like dealing with the stuff that's there? Or are you just ready to, you know, just go load up again? You know, um, are you, you know, if you have work and your needs are met in those things, like is that enough and you can rest and learn to be content or you just, you just have to go get more, go get more, go get more. And so, so there's these things, like there's that side of alone too. Like, and then Cody was alone. For me, it's relaxing. It's difficult for me to relax, but I'm getting better. That's my alone. It's like, can I just like relax and not do anything of importance? You know, and fill, or fill gap time with, with screens or that sort of thing. Can I just be alone and just relax and just chill? And so we all have that stuff in our bag that we, that we move on and, so what happens is with Jacob, he's alone. And as he's wrestling with God, it's an interesting scene because it says that he could not overcome Jacob. You say, wait a minute, God's stronger than Jacob. Jesus is stronger than Jacob. So what's going on here? Well, there's even a point where God says to Jacob, let me go because they're grappling all night. And then Jacob says, no, not till you bless me. And so God cheats a little bit. He touches his hip. He, he uses a little bit of his divine strength. He touches his hip. And, and so he walked with a limp the rest of his days because he wrestled with God. But he finally lets him go and he does bless Jacob. He blesses him and lets him go. But doesn't this make sense, though, with the way you read Jesus in the New Testament? You see, God himself, Alpha and Omega, all-powerful, he created all things. Nothing exists that, that he didn't create. You see one that can raise the dead, heal the sick, and, and, and move, and power, and life, and all of those things. And yet, he made himself vulnerable to the point that he was nailed to a cross and allowed human beings to kill him. He was no victim. He allowed himself into that place. And then people even hurled insults like, you know, he, you know, he, um, you know, let him save his own life. He healed others. Let him heal himself. Let him do this. Right. And so as you look at Jesus in the New Testament, doesn't that line up with what we see here? That even though he has the power to change Jacob, because that's really what he's trying to do here. He doesn't force himself on him. And isn't that what God is like? Because God will never force himself upon anybody. He's there, he's present, but he's not going to do it by force. That's what we see Jesus time and time again, working with people. He can do so much, but he holds back for the good of the person so that they can be involved in it. Uh, you know, and I, 
this kind of makes sense, part of my journey. You know, I met Jesus when I was 15, and then for six years I wrestled with God. That version of the match, that round. But it was a, will I surrender fully to this, or will I live for my flesh? Will I be a wild man doing whatever I want, or will I be yielded to God? And uh, at the beginning of the, like the, the worst time of this, 18 to 21, uh, there was a choice. Like I had a choice. Like, will I go to this uh, Christian camp uh, in, you know, outside of the town with the people that I've been seeking Jesus with and after graduation do that? Or will I go to the Colorado River and drink as much beer as I could over a three-day period? Which one did I choose? The Colorado River, you know? And so that's why I look at this story here and I say, there's that. And what that did is that that went for a time where it was harder for me to seek after. Never stopped believing, never those things, but my heart, my life wasn't yielded to God. But at the end of that time, when I was 21, it was like this moment where I was asking God to bless me and move in my life and work things in my life like he had in the past, and I got this. No, you're going to commit to me now. And from that moment on, it was, okay. It was as if God touched my head. All right, whatever you want, whatever you need, like whatever, I'll go wherever you want to do. I'll do what you ever want to, I'll, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm yours. And so this is true for us as well. So Jacob now limps to his expected battle with Esau. And, you know, so he's limping into this and he's got the story of his mind. Like he sent his family ahead. Like, so if these guys were coming to attack, remember 400 trained warriors with his mad brother, who the last time he saw him wanted to kill him. And as he's walking into this, right, uh, he sends his family, he sends all of his servants ahead of him to deal with this. And I mean, that's not really, he's not really leading or protecting, right? Like what if they took them out? But that's not what happened. And again, Another one of the most beautiful verses in scripture. In verse four of chapter 33 of Genesis says, then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they both wept. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that you have this moment and and they actually uh, live well together for the rest of their days and they keep distance, but, but things are healed. And so things are different than what they went over in their head, right? So when we don't talk to other people, when we don't see other people, we assume all sorts of things, right? And that's what was happening here. See, as Jacob had been learning to change and and to get rid of his family stuff, Esau had been doing that too. God had been working in his heart as well. And so Jacob's going deeper into the blessing of God, but but he and his family are wounded and they hit barriers. In chapters... um, 33 and 34, horrible tragedies happen with the family. They don't respond well. They actually wipe out a whole group of people, Jacob's sons, and, and treat their children and, and uh, wives poorly. And it's just, it's a terrible scene. And it's a reminder of this theme that we see time and time again, that as God shows grace, people don't necessarily respond with health and life because of the things that are ingrained in them. And, uh, one important thing to read this is that Jacob's name is changed to Israel during this wrestling with God. And Israel means that God will fight. God will persist. God will reign. God will rule. 
And the primary audience for reading this, we are ultimately part of the primary audience, but the primary audience for reading this is Israel, the people of Israel. So as these stories were told and they look back at it, they would see this picture of Jacob wrestling with God and they would look in and they would see themselves. And they'd be reminded even by their name that it's ultimately God that is faithful. God is the one that will keep fighting. God is the one that will persist. God is the one that does this. And that's a word for you and I with our families too. You know, um, because it's it's very real. It's much easier just to relegate or to, to put God into a place that it's just about getting to heaven. It's just about like, you know, that's just my spiritual life. But then somehow the rest of my life is, is I give the stiff arm to God. You know, I'll handle this stuff. But then we struggle and we go back and forth with, with a rhythm of life where we struggle in the other areas of our lives. And then we ask God to help and he helps, but we don't go back and forth because we don't let him go deep. We, we stay at the surface level with God. And, and really what we need is we need to let God in deep into our bag, into our family bag deep into that. And that's what Jacob does in verses, in chapter 35, uh, and, and then 36, where we finish. Uh, in it, now, it's been a while since you've seen the theme in Genesis from the writer where he's brought us back to Eden. All throughout the book, and all throughout scripture, actually, when you see a tree, it's reminding us of the first trees in Eden, that there was all the trees, but then there was the tree of good and evil, where separation happened between God and man. And so he'll bring back saying, this is an Eden moment. It's a choice moment. It's, it's, it's where things are restored or tore apart. And the way that happens in 35 is, is the writer talks about um, what we would see as an obscure person uh, that she dies, but it says she's buried under an oak. And so you say, why is this important to be talked about? Well, because he's bringing us back to the tree. And also Jacob, as he's cleaning houses, we're going to see in a second, it speaks of a tree, that they buried it under a tree. And so it brings us back to these, these Eden moments. Uh, during chapter 35, Rachel <clears throat> dies, giving birth to Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. Isaac, Jacob's father, dies and is buried by Esau and Jacob. And then you see genealogies in chapter 35 and 36. And the writer of Genesis as well, anytime you see a genealogy, he's reminding you of the continuation of God's promise. Because he's reminding you of this family, even though they've messed things up completely, God is continuing to work. God is continuing to work to what he wants to do and will do ultimately. But there's something that brings this about, and that's the actions of Jacob in, in verse 1 through 4 of 35. And Jacob decides he'll deal with something. He decides, he makes a decision that he's going to deal with the deep stuff that are in his family's bag. And it's not that everything turns right from that point on, but it's a significant moment. Let's read. It says, Then God said to Jacob, Get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob told everyone in his household, Get rid of all your pagan idols, purify yourselves, and put on clean clothing. We are now going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their pagan idols and earrings, and he buried them under the great tree near Shechem. 
And so what does he do? How does he go deep and how does he allow God in? Well, he says, get rid of your foreign idols. Sometimes this is hard for us because we look in and we say, well, I don't have any idols, you know, around. But basically, they were basically images or figures that represented gods that would do things for them. And they ultimately trusted in them. And so if we do kind of an inventory, we kind of have some stuff like that, you know? We kind of have some things that maybe we need to clean house with. Maybe some things that are passed on from generation to generation. Maybe some things that, you know, we read scripture, we, receive, we read God's heart for us and God's life for us, and, and it's different than maybe what's been passed on to us, what's been handed down to us. And so that's the thing that they're doing here by doing this is they're saying they take the idols and, and the earrings must have had something to do with that too and they, they bury them. And they say, you know what? I don't want this influencing me anymore. I don't want to be this way anymore. I don't, like I recognize that. And this can be emotional too. I mean, for Jacob and them, you know, the idols many times represented their, their family. It connected them to their family. For, remember, Rachel stole uh, her father's uh, idols. And so in some ways, those idols connected them to their family that went before. And, and this can be difficult, too, because in some ways, um, you, uh, you know, the things that have been passed on, even if they're unhealthy, it connects you to that person, and especially if the person's maybe passed away. You know, maybe your mom or your dad or an uncle um, or a grandparent or, or somebody has passed away. And, and that's what connects the, you to them, even though maybe it's an unhealthy thing and it doesn't care for this life that you've been given. He also says to them to purify themselves, right? You know, in the New Testament, we, we see that, you know, uh, what we gain from that is, is that, you know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, what? can wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so as Christians, we see that we can purify ourselves because like we read this morning, we gather for prayer at 9 a.m., which you guys are always welcome. Um, you know, uh, we pray at 9 a.m. for the day. And we read Psalm 103, and it talks about how God is, uh, he, he forgives sins and he heals diseases. And it talks about how, uh, God forgives our sins as far as the east is from the west. And, uh, and it reminds us that that doesn't matter what you're struggling with. It doesn't matter what's been handed down to you. It doesn't matter what you've... Because there's that too, right? Like, like is there something in my life or, or your life that you don't want to put in your family bag for the next generation? Is there something there that, 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 it, you, know, that you sit there and you're juggling it and juggling it and juggling it? But the reality is, is that the little ones are watching the ones that are coming after you are watching and, and they're learning about that too. So what's in your family bag? Don't respond, okay? I know what's in mine. I know the things I battle. I know the things God's freed me up from. I know the things that I look and I say, I'll, you know, look at my sons. When they were all born, I looked and I saw the moment they were born, I, oh, yeah, I see that characteristic of myself, or I see that characteristic of Michelle, this is so cool. And, and then as they get older, you know, and they do things and, and, and they'll do things that you don't like or aren't healthy. And you'd be like, well, who does that look like? You know, where did they learn that? 
you know? Right, you know that country song? It's like, you know, the guy's driving along, his kid's got a happy meal in the back and hits the brakes, country meal flies forward and, he's, and the son says, you know, an expletive. And he goes, son, where, where'd you learn that word? And he goes, well, I've been watching you, dad. I want to be like you. And there's redemption in the song too. And he, he prays with his son and, and, and he says, where'd you learn to pray like that? He goes, I've been watching you, dad. I want to be like you, right? So they learn from us. But, you know, the five areas of life, really, are health. So physical and emotional health. Is there things in your family bag under health, physical and emotional, that really don't help you be the person God created you to be, for Christ to be formed in you? Are you battling up against that and not dealing with it? There's financial, you know, our ideas of money get passed on to us from, from generations to generations. You know, there's some that it doesn't matter how much you have, there's always a, like a mindset of poverty. You know, or it ends up being worshipped. You know, or it becomes your security. That if I just have enough of this, then I'll be okay. There's a New Testament pro, uh, parable about that. Jesus said, you know, this person gained barns upon barns of stuff. And he says, I know I'll, get, I'll build more barns and I'll have more and more and more and more and more. And it says, little did he know that his life would be asked of him that night. In other words, he wasn't living for something, just getting more and more. And so uh, maybe that's been passed on. Or, um, you know, then there's work, right? Like work, there's the work circle of your life. Like, you know, has anything been passed on there that, that um, you know, it could be that, you know, it could be like a laziness. In other words, I don't work or I don't do that or, you know, I don't know. I'm just, okay. I, in other words, not taking responsibility. That could have been passed on you or over responsibility with work. I got to do it all. Nobody else. You know, and then there's relationships. You know, what are, the, what are the ways of dealing with relationships and functioning in relationships that have been passed on to you? Is there some work needed there? And then lastly, there's spiritual. What are the spiritual things that have been passed on to you, you know, in your bag? And it's, it's really asking the question, is God given access to all these areas? And uh, Steve Jones and I were, we were talking this week, and he, uh, he's going to teach next week as we go in to talk about Joseph. Oh. What a wonderful, wonderful part of Scripture. You see this over and over again where it says that, but God was with Joseph. And so it dials in on this family and what God does in the life. And, but we were talking about what I was teaching through today, trying to see how do we have some cohesiveness between the messages. And uh, he, he pointed me towards Pete Scazzaro, who's an author and pastor that we both read and listen to. And there's this uh, hauntingly wonderful thought that he shares. He says this, he says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. And the task of discipleship is to get Jesus more and more in your bones. And so may we do that. May we not just think that this thing of wholeness and being the person that we're made to be just automatically happens without any part of us being students or walking through it. But let's participate with God in what he's doing. And it's not a thing of he's saying like, hey, you need to change and then I'll love you. No, he loves you perfectly. But he wants you to experience all that he has for you in this life. 
and to be free from the things that hold us back. Thanks for listening this week. If you are looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, go to vkcwest.com.